Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Ria Mehta, and this week, Nika Kodasane, Juliana Davis, Olivia Becker, and I spoke with Sam Abrams, a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where it focuses on questions of related civic and political culture and American ideologies. Professor of Politics and Social Science at Sarah Lawrence College, and a faculty fellow with New York University's Center for Advanced Social Science Research. We had a fascinating discussion about cross-partisanship, what gets in the way of it, what's necessary to foster it, and what benefits it can yield. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a sophomore from New Jersey. I'm especially interested in journalism and politics, and especially how that's playing a role during the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Juliana Davis. I'm from Manhattan. I'm a high school senior, and I'm very personally interested in the way that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected political polarization, and I'm excited to talk about polarization on college campuses. Hi, I'm Ria. I go to high school in Central New Jersey. I'm a senior and I'm passionate about bipartisanship and civic engagement. My name is Olivia Becker. I am from New York City, but I was actually going to school a block away from AEI this past spring at the School for Ethics and Global Leadership. And I'm really, really passionate about partisanship on college campuses and in high school. You know, I have amazing friends all over Washington. People always say to me when I teach, well, how do, you, how do you work with people at the Center for American Progress? And what I say constantly is, we all like the nationals. So we go out and, and have hot dogs at the Nats games. When you get to Washington, and I will show you this, you know, when you think about partisanship, we all want the same thing. We want to make America actually better. We want to make things great. We want to make things more equitable. And what's so great about the think tank world is we respect each other. We just realize our paths to getting there are a little different. And I think a lot of people don't talk about the fact that these are all really great people. In my uh, courses this year, uh, you know, with Zoom, one of the nice things that happened, and this was the silver lining, was that I was able to say uh, to my friends all over the ideological and political spectrum, hey, would you help me out? Would you come Zoom with my students? So we had people on the right and the left, and it was amazing. No one was angry about it. Everyone realized everyone is there to do uh, as good a job as possible, to help as many people as they can. And, you know, unexpectedly, Zoom enabled us to really expose each other to real viewpoint diversity. And it may have been the best class I've ever had. And the best part is most of us did it in our PJs. Do you want to introduce yourself to the readers and explain a little bit of your background and how you ended up at AEI? Happy to. I'm also a professor at Sarah Lawrence College up in Westchester uh, in Bronxville. I live in Manhattan. So for any of you in the New York area, let me connect you to students uh, all around the city. I've have had wonderful students at the New School, Columbia, NYU, and Sarah Lawrence. We have tons of events, tons of speakers, and great people come through New York all the time. So connect with me, uh, find me on Twitter, Facebook, just email me and come to our events. They're open to everybody. So let's, let's do that. That's really important. As a, as a New Yorker, one of the greatest things about New York is that everyone likes to talk and uh, everyone likes to meet. So we should totally try to do that. In terms of my background, I'm currently a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, a small liberal arts uh, college, and I'm a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute down in Washington, D.C. I ended up in New York because I was uh, chasing a young lady that I met in graduate school. I went to Harvard for graduate school, and it's been a whirlwind uh, experience. Some people love me, some people hate me, and, and that's okay with some of the students, but the last couple of years I've noticed a big change on campus, and it's sort of like what I heard when I signed in today, which is Gen Z, you guys, 
are totally different than the millennial group. And uh, the media often misses that. There has been a change in the last three years where Gen Zers are open, they're thoughtful, they're centrist. They don't have to be centrist, but they're centrist insofar as you want to understand the world and make it better. And you don't care about the labels. You're not as dogmatic as uh, folks who are five to 10 years older. And it's amazing because I think this is the, the biggest hope we have for uh, the future. Um, I just wrote an article for CNN and it's about why Gen Zers, you who are just in college and in high school, are going to change the world and uh, are, are going to be bigger and more important than you know, those of us who are in Gen X, the bitter folks who are in our late 30s and mid 40s, 10% of the upcoming election, the electorate are going to be Gen Z folks. So you have a voice, it's time to make that voice heard. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. In terms of how did I get to AEI, I was again at Sarah Lawrence College. It's a teaching college. We are very uh, much interested and in, in concerned with teaching, which is a wonderful thing, but we don't do a whole lot of research. Uh, bigger universities do teaching and research. When I got to Sarah Lawrence, a number of people noticed that, hey, I still like to do research and write. And uh, my friends at Stanford said, hey, would you like to come out uh, west and work with us to do your research? So I did that for a number of years. After a while, it was too hard to go back and forth from New York to San Francisco, Palo Alto. And uh, some folks at the American Enterprise Institute reached out and said, would you like to join us? Namely, a gentleman named uh, Arthur Brooks, who uh, is, a, is a wonderful guy. And uh, they basically said, we'd like you to continue doing your work on polarization and centrism. And, you know, how do we understand the political changes in this country? So I said, that sounds awesome. And now it's a short uh, train ride down to DC or was before COVID. You're familiar with controversy. Not everyone loves you as a professor. And I remember reading about how you've had people against your tenure as a professor at Sarah Lawrence. I was just wondering your experience with that. And then also the notion of bias and partisanship in the classroom, does that belong there? Should institutions be nonpartisan or like the University of Chicago be fully open to discourse? What should the future of American education look like? First, I love what the University of Chicago and uh, Professor Jeff Stone is trying to do. I think the Chicago principles on free speech are really, really important. And quite a few schools have signed on to those. Uh, for those of you who don't know, basically it's a position that says, we should be free to discuss and debate whatever we need to discuss and debate because that's the point of higher education and, and liberal arts. And, you know, I, I certainly agree with that. There are a number of schools that have not signed on to those explicitly, but have taken similar steps uh, to do that. And there are a number of wonderful institutions uh, such as Wesleyan, not too far uh, from New York, up in Connecticut. Uh, President Michael Roth has been very good about that too. Uh, when I signed on, incidentally, uh, something that I really liked was uh, that someone had mentioned, and I couldn't see who said it, that we need safe spaces. I actually agree that we need safe spaces. And what I mean when I say we need safe spaces is we need a safe space in the classroom because people, what has happened is people are so afraid of being recorded in a weird way. People are so afraid of asking questions because it might hurt someone's feelings that we're not being, you know, a lot of people are just not comfortable having this sort of discourse and dialogue that we should be doing in college and universities. One of the things I do when I start all of my classes is I say to them, look, we're all here at Sarah Lawrence. We all care about being good human beings. Otherwise, you wouldn't come to college. There are very few students that I've met over time where it's been extreme. And uh, if they are, we can deal with that. We can talk to them about it. But what I say is, you know, I start with uh, a mantra from someone who I very much admire, a gentleman named Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Daniel Patrick Moynihan was a Harvard professor, uh, then ended up being senator from New York City, 
uh, leading progressive trying to deal with poverty and inequalities, uh, something I care deeply about. Definitely look him up and look up his record. Very, very important. Uh, we're going to have a new train station in New York. Uh, it's going to be the Moynihan train station for Amtrak coming up. And he said, everyone is uh, entitled to his or her own opinion, but not his or her own facts. And that's the mantra that I subscribe to, which is, let's get the facts. Let's figure out what the truth is. We have to discuss how we get the facts. And there are many ways to get the facts and get the narratives. And then we put them out there. And then that's where public policy comes in. That's where ideology comes in. For certain things, it's about establishing truth. And then it's about how we choose to interpret that truth and operationalize that truth. Meaning, you know, what are we going to do to help uh, improve poverty and help housing? That's where ideology comes in. And that's a legitimate perspective. Um, some people say, look, we need more government, uh, more government intervention, more funds to folks. We need to build more through government intervention. Other people might say, look, we want to let the free market do that. And we may want people to get hurt in the meantime. And I don't mean hurt in a, in a terrible way, but realize that some people will win, some people will lose, but the market will account for that. And there's quite a bit of evidence which suggests that's a great motivator as well. Uh, so that's how I sort of approach the teaching, which is to say we need to establish the facts. And when I think about how I teach and deal with, with classrooms, one of the things I also like to do is bring in as many authors as I can. So if we're going to talk about, oh, I don't know, the American dream, which is what I actually just finished teaching, it's not just one view of the American dream. I'm going to try to bring in eight to ten if I can. And to do that, for instance, in my American dream class, I brought in as many authors to the class as I possibly could from as many different narratives as possible. So it's not just, for instance, my narrative, which is Eastern European Jews coming through uh, Ellis Island, seeing the Statue of Liberty, living in the Lower East Side, moving around. Incidentally, my family did not do that. They actually went through Philadelphia, but that's the typical Jewish narrative. But there are so many more, and we were able to bring those in and talk about it and bring in guests. And that's the type of education that I really aspire to. And um, that, you know, that to me is ideologically free. We, we, it means we have ideology in the classroom, but no one's trying to promote a particular ideology. And I think that's the, the greatest thing we can do. Now, once everyone's done establishing their own facts, we can talk about how ideology maps onto that, sure. But I don't start with a particular ideology, and I hope no one who's ever worked with me has ever said I've tried to prom you know, promote one over the other, because to me, that's a failure as a teacher. And like a personal mantra is John Stuart Mill when he says, not the violent conflict between parts of the truth, but the quiet suppression of half of it is the formidable evil. I think that's so true when a classroom only covers, you know, 50% of the story and then equates that to morality. But what I was going to add to, to the Chicago principles is the fact that private high schools actually don't have to uphold the First Amendment rights of its students. And so how um, I think it's also really important if we try to implement that at an earlier age, because the Yale problem, as, as Jonathan Haidt put it, starts a lot earlier than we think it does. John and quite a few other folks, including yours truly, are very involved in this thing called the Heterodox Academy. Um, sign up for our emails, uh, join it, great events, great things now on Zoom, and a chance to hear from people with incredibly different backgrounds. Because the deal is, it's not about trying to influence anyone in terms of what to think and what the truth is. It's about just making sure the truth can get out. Uh, and that's something uh, I, I care very deeply about. Incidentally, I work at a private institution. Sarah Lawrence is a private institution. I also do not have the right to free speech as part of uh, you know, the constitutional right to free speech as a function of where I work. Uh, however, at Sarah Lawrence, I do have that right because it's enshrined in our operating principles. So I was able to, to, to push that. So that worked out uh, but about nicely. But um, there are some very big differences about what can be said and what cannot be said in, in, in various schools uh, from 
uh, middle school all the way up to higher ed. One of my civic action projects as a Next Generation Politics Lead Fellow is working on a project around free expression in high schools. And I was not a surprise because I realized that like private institutions don't have to uphold like the rights to free expression or free speech, but it did make me think a lot about, I think it was some like 12% of the respondents to the survey we sent out said that they thought that free speech was like a guarantee and free expression was a guarantee. And that was really upsetting to like me and my entire team because like people obviously don't think it's a guarantee because they've had experiences where they haven't been able to freely express their opinions. And I was wondering if you'd seen anything during your tenure as a professor that like ignited your passion for like nonpartisanship and free expression and whatnot. Sure. So it really started um, at Sarah Lawrence a number of years ago because, and, and, and this is where, what Sarah Lawrence didn't like and got me into some trouble. And what I uh, was happy to talk about with the New York Times piece which was, I got to Sarah Lawrence and certain people just said, you can't ask those questions. You can't say certain things. Uh, here's how we have to think about things. And I really didn't care what it was. People have said, well, would you like to be in an all conservative room? And, and absolutely not, that would be a disaster. I would like a room with as much diversity as possible. What I, what I say to, to people about New York is what our strength in New York City is that we are so diverse that we just have such mixing of cultures. That's why we have so many great ideas, such great art, such good restaurants. We push, we're critical, we debate. So I don't want an echo chamber. And I realized there was too much of an echo chamber at Sarah Lawrence College. Uh, it turns out there's an echo chamber uh, at many schools around the country. The issue for me was as a graduate student, I was so removed from that for so long that I didn't see it develop. When I was an undergraduate at Stanford, this was not what was going on. When I was at Stanford, I was in a theme house, uh, basically one of those dorms where people say, okay, we all agree to live in this dormitory and we're gonna do activities related to X, Y, and Z. I lived in the public policy theme, but I remember staying up till two or three in the morning, something I cannot do anymore at age 40. But when I was 18 and 19, I absolutely did. And I remember we would talk about everything under the sun. You know, I came from a religious Jewish background. As you can see, I'm not like that anymore, but I was at the time and people asked me things that were remarkably, um, by today's standards, inappropriate. I loved being asked those questions because why not ask me? You wanna know, you know nothing about it. Why would that offend me? I loved it. And I got to ask questions about cultures and communities I knew nothing about. And uh, it was amazing. And I got to go to my first Bangra. They have something called Bangra by the Bay. And I got to ask folks uh, of Desi background or Indian background these questions I never knew. And I learned quite a bit about it. And um, I really wanted to understand why did this change? Where did this all change? And um, you know, while I was in graduate school, this amazing thing changed. We basically became an administrative state at a lot of colleges and universities. We became really top heavy in the administrative apparatus and the folks in the administration started saying, here's what you can talk about. Here's what you cannot talk about. Here's orientation. We have to talk, for instance, at orientation about your gender expression. I respect every gender, whatever you wanna be, that's your business and I will respect it. But I have a lot of students who come to me who say, why do I have to talk about my sexual preferences? Why do I have to talk about my sexual history? And then a lot of them said, I don't even know yet, and I haven't experienced anything yet. This is uncomfortable. And that would happen you know, year after year after year. And I realized our students are afraid to talk. And if you say something against the prevailing wind, which was progressive at a lot of these schools, they were shamed and they had to silence themselves. And we look at survey data on this where students say they regularly silence themselves. And that was my motivation. I said, this is wrong. And I want to be unambiguously clear that this would be as wrong if it were on the other direction. I would be as angry if it were a conservative position which said pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. 
versus pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice. These are individual choices. These are personal choices. And people are here to talk about what they want on their own terms. That's the point of college. But I was noticing that this sort of stuff began to infect the classroom because what you do in the classroom doesn't always stay in the classroom. And that's why I mentioned the safe space. I want students to be able to talk about whatever they feel like talking about when they're in the classroom. And uh, to my absolute joy, and I've written about this, you can see uh, if you go to my AEI webpage, the students embraced it. And uh, over 20% of the student body at Sarah Long's tried to sign up for one of my seminars this spring. That told me that people want to be able to talk. They want to be able to debate and they want to hear these things. And they don't like the fact that that's not happening. But we also want to remember just because there's a loud voice doesn't mean it's the right voice. Just because there's a small minority that speaks up, we call this tyranny of the minority in political science, doesn't mean it actually represents what people want and what people need. And students began to say to me, they really appreciate hearing that. And that's why I started writing about this and researching. And I realized, geez, my job is, as a public policy person and a public opinion person is to study this. So let me go study it. And uh, some people loved it. Uh, some people hated it. But uh, when I go around the country and speak, hundreds if not thousands of students line up and want to talk about it. And it's always the same thing. We want to hear ideas. We're not nearly as fragile as you think. We're not snowflakes. The words aren't going to hurt us. Now that, to be clear, some words are completely inappropriate. Some terms are completely inappropriate and you have to consider the context. And there are certain words which people know that don't have to be said to get that conversation across. I totally agree with that. But the ideas, we need to be free to talk about those. And uh, that's our sacred job as professors. Do you think that there's sort of been a politicization of facts that has sort of affected the way people see their opinions? Do you think that having certain facts, people are seeing that as like taking a political opinion now? Unfortunately, you know, uh, they've been trying to politicize Fauci. To, to me, and by the way, incidentally, I should step back and say, I came from a science background and I think that's why I was doing chemistry for years before I became public policy and political science. And I think that's uh, why I think it's so straightforward. There are facts, there are truths. We can try to establish the facts. We can debate how we establish the fact, which is really the, the key, the, the secret sauce to figuring out what is a fact. But once we've done that, the facts are the facts. Uh, people try to spin it, people will try to ignore certain facts, and people will try to collect facts or create narratives around one fact that may or may not tell the whole story. And that's why it's critical to do that. We, we try to establish the whole story and be transparent. You know, one of the things I always talk about is people have to be able to present data. It has to be replicable. With my own work, when I'm done with my survey data, I will share it. You know, it's not a problem. The whole point is, you know, we become stronger by sharing and finding our weaknesses and growing from those weaknesses. But I, I completely agree. We've completely politicized certain areas uh, that shouldn't be. Uh, and, you know, I'm very comfortable in saying the scientific method exists for a reason. It's pretty good. It's solved a lot of problems in the past. And I don't see any reason why we should abandon it now. I just wanted to follow up on your most recent CNN article. Most of our listeners are Gen Z. And so just talking about the use of our generation and how able we are to be change makers. So I am, and, and, and this sounds like I'm talking down and I don't want to do that at all. But when I jumped on, uh, you folks were finishing up a conversation about voting and then politics by other means. So I want to be very clear that I think they're both right because politics by other means is critical. You need to build coalitions. You need to build momentum. You can do that in ways unimaginable. You can reach people today in ways that were not possible. When I started college, I had a landline and I could only go 20 feet because I had to buy an extra long cord. Now you can take your phone anywhere. It's, you know, it's amazing to see how that works. I remember I could not call people because it cost money and I had to wait 
until the fees, the call changed. So now all that stuff is gone. The means to organizing are very affordable and almost everyone has access to them. But the thing that's really gonna matter, and I can't say this enough to the listeners, is you need to vote. You have to vote. Figure out how to do it. Facebook, a million and other technology companies have made this work. Make sure you're registered. Make sure you turn in an absentee ballot if you can't do it in person. Lots of states are switching over to mail-in ballots. There is no excuse. As I say to my students and, and, and so on, I will give you a stamp if for some reason you need a stamp, but you don't vote, you don't count. I think you do count, and, but even if you don't vote, but to make your voices heard, you have to vote. It is amazing to me when you look at the original field of the Democratic Party, how representative it was and how it ended up ignoring younger people uh, the way it worked out. Please vote. Please get your friends to vote. Please pressure them to vote. I hate to say it, but shame and humiliation is a very powerful motivator. Please vote. Do you not care about me, my family, our friends? Let's, let's vote. Let's, let's participate. I can't stress that importance enough. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics. <laughs>